bulletins. There's a couple of handouts I want you to have handy. One is a handout that, is, that says philosophy of ministry. It's a summary of our philosophy of ministry. We have a you know, three-ring binder full of philosophy of ministry that's thought through for our church, but this is a summary, and I'm going to be picking up on some themes from that this morning. And then also you have the take-home sheet. You can take this out and toss it aside because uh, I think it's the wrong one. And so I just wanted to make that clear to you because somebody came up and said, you know, I was having a tough time following that, and I thought, that's because it's got the wrong date and it's from a year ago. Okay, good. Well, since that's out of the way, uh, let's pray one more time as we approach the Word of God. Lord, we thank you for your Word. We don't want to take it lightly. Your Word is uh, like handling a power tool. It's the ultimate power tool um, because it is a two-edged sword. And Lord, it is able to pierce our own hearts as we are um, eager to be convicted by our sins and to be motivated by your grace. And so God, use this message uh, this morning as it as it jives with the Word of God, as it connects with the Word of God, I pray that it would be profitable to change our lives. We thank you, God, for your precious truth. We thank you for our church, and I pray that you would give me utterance and uh, strength of voice this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, I'm calling this uh, the sermon vision this morning. Um, We've been in Philippians uh, for I don't know, six months or longer, and we're on the home stretch of Philippians in chapter 4, and we're, we're going into a section on giving, but we're going to stall that for a little bit because um, as you received in uh, the mailer this week, you should have received a couple handouts. One is an organizational chart for how we're um, doling out the duties for the future with our pastoral team, and uh, there's volunteers listed there, there's deacons, deaconesses listed there, elders, and different facets to look into. If you didn't get one of these, You can find it in the church office over here. They're out on the table um, for you to get, out on the countertop. And then also the philosophy of ministry, which uh, lays out a summary um, in four distinctives. And I want to just list those for you now. The first one is transcendent worship. Um, These uh, distinctives, by the way, are what we believe in as Anchorage Grace Church. And really it represents where the pastors and elders have prayerfully considered who we are as a church and our history, our 35-year history, our heritage together as a church that, that loves the Bible, loves God's Word, and from uh, the Holy Spirit's moving in our lives and the concert of discussion, dialogue with the flock and with each other, um, these are the themes that, that have emerged for us, and I want to preach from these themes this morning. The first one is transcendent worship. The second is expository preaching. The third one is building community, and the last one is making disciples, and I'm going to explain those for us this morning. Um, as a little bit of a lead-in, let me, let me just talk about um, something I've read recently from a book uh, written by David Wells. It's a book called The Courage to be Protestant. The Courage to be Protestant, and some of you men have been part of a Bible study on every other Wednesday night. Um, where we're going through this book called The Courage to be Protestant. We are meeting again this Wednesday night. Um, Lord willing, if I can still talk, uh, we will meet on Wednesday night and go into that book again. The subheading of The Courage to be Protestant, written by David Wells. David Wells, by the way, is a longtime professor at Gordon-Conwell University. He is a, he's a very um, profound and prolific author, and he's good in terms of sociology and defining the times and uh, cultural analysis, especially in terms of where the church is and where it's going. And so this book, um, it, it's really breaking down where the church is today. 
and it's subtitled um, Truth Lovers, Marketers, and Emergents, um, who are those in the postmodern world, and how the church really can be broken down into those three categories. You have truth lovers, you have marketers, and you have the church emergent or the postmodern movements. Um, he said basically in the intro of that book that in the last 15 or 20 years, the church has made a shift from being denominationally defined, defined in terms of being a Baptist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Episcopalian, to being more defined in terms of methodology. Um, it's moved from being defined in terms of doctrinal distinctives, you know, traditions and convictions that the church has held dear, and that kind of defines you as you go to different kinds of churches, to being defined in terms of methods, and, and methods really are, are consuming the feel and atmosphere of a church as you walk into it. And as many of you, chur- um, you know, visit churches and go to different ones, if you visit family in the lower 48 or what have you, you walk in and you can kind of, you know, test the temperature. You can take the temperature of a church in terms of these categories. One, um, a marketing church. Now, I was raised in a church that was market-driven and, and was um, a large church and was, have participated and even interned in um, several churches that are more market-driven. So I'm not trying to dog churches in any way, but I am trying to just speak uh, clearly in terms of some of these movements. A marketing church is a church that is um, more program-driven, They're trying to create programs to draw as many people in the doors as possible on Sunday mornings. It's a heart that uh, really is evangelistic, I think, in terms of their Sunday morning offering, where you want to see people come to Christ. And so, kind of like Easter and Christmas, you're trying to get people who wouldn't normally walk into a church to walk into a church house and to hear the gospel and come to faith in Christ. So it's a, it's a good motive, but what happens is, is um, you, you sort of create programs that draw people in and sometimes turn the people that come in the doors, instead of worshiping God, they, they're coming in more as a customer or a consumer. And some of the modern church growth gurus have even confessed that, that you know, they've erred a bit with their methodology because people come into church and they become church shoppers and consumers rather than um, worshipers or people who are gathering into relationship and community with each other. Um, and what happens is, is that leaders of marketing church movements have to keep a bead on what the trends are to try to keep... Um, creating programs to draw people into these churches. You kind of get on a performance business treadmill if you have this methodology as your heartbeat. And you can create people who basically are church shopping like picking different food at a buffet. And so that's one of the dangers of church shopping. Well, the emergent crowd or the postmodern crowd has reacted to the marketing churches. And they've created this this movement called the emergent church who's heard of the emergent church some of you yeah uh, there are churches that they won't really use the name church in their name anymore that's deliberate because they're really speaking more to an experience rather than an identity and they're reacting to the marketing churches where they're going you know churches today are so into growth and so into programs that they feel like going to a shopping mall and so we're trying to create authenticity in our church where relationships are paramount they're everything Relationships drive why they do what they do, connecting with people, connecting with people over food, over ambiance, over experience. They come together, and, and 
and again, good things happen. People are saved in marketing churches. I was saved in one as a 17-year-old. People are saved in emergent churches, you know, churches that are more defined as by experience. You'll hear names like the river, the journey, different, you know, experiential names to try to um, demarcate what is going on there. And it's not all bad, but what happens with emergent churches is oftentimes they will highlight experience and relating with each other to the expense of or the sacrifice of doctrine. A lot of emergent churches won't define their doctrinal statement. They won't have a doctrinal statement. They'll say, look, the Word of God is a mysterious book, which it is. It's a supernatural book, but they'll push it to the point of saying it's really not clear to all of us, and what we need to do to find truth is have a conversation with the Bible as an active participant in the conversation. And so, you know, it's sort of this gathering together and what does that mean to you and what does this mean to me type thing is going on in the emergent church. And it, it, it's a danger because we need to be able to say that the word of God is clear because the gospel is clear and that's what saves us. So then you have a third category. So you have marketing churches, church emergent churches, a third category. And I would like to say that, that kind of this is our category that we fit in in terms of David Wells' analysis, and that is truth-loving churches. Um, I want to encourage Grace Church as we, you know, I've been here four years so far. It's a drop in the bucket. But as we sort of uh, stand on a foundation of, of 35 years of opening the book together, I want us to be people who come together who are hungry for God's word to change and transform our lives. And how the word of God, um, it informs. I'm not anti-program. I think you should have programs and strategies and, and, and methodologies that are done with excellence. But I want the word of God to inform everything that we do. Even our renewal project in a couple weeks, we're going to have, you can see it's becoming more industrialized behind me every week. We're going to have black curtains in a couple weeks, you know. And, and, and that is... That, that gives ambiance. We're going to use house lighting that will give ambiance to our worship center. So I'm not anti-ambiance. I'm not anti-community. I'm not anti-program. But I want the Word of God to inform and drive why we do what we do as a church. The Bible gives a biblical blueprint, especially in the New Testament, for what church is all about. What is, what is um, defined and described by the Word of God is what we should be doing. We should take our orders from the truth. And, and so I believe that as elders thought through where we're going as a church, as we've prayed as pastors and had a lot of discussions about our church, that these values, these four distinctives, highlight a biblically defined church direction for Anchorage Grace Church. As one person put it, um, and I, I like it as sort of a mantra, if you take care of the depth of the ministry, then you're allowing God to take care of the breadth of the ministry, both numerically and spiritually. You let God deal with the fruit in the hearts of our lives. And, and you, we present the word of God with clarity, with confidence, and unashamedly we present the gospel and say, this is where I stand. It's courage. Courage to be a gospel, truth-loving Christian where you wear that on your sleeve. That's what I see in terms of the New Testament church as it's described and defined in Scripture. Okay, let's, let's tackle um, these values or these distinctives. First and foremost, transcendent worship. Transcendent worship. And anytime you talk about worship, a lot of times people immediately think in terms of worship styles. There are contemporary styles, there are traditional styles. 
there's the old hymns, and we've sung some of those, and then there are really current choruses and melodies and even current hymns that are being written. And a lot of times there is this thing called worship wars where people say, which should we sing? You know, where should we emphasize our style in worship? Should we be a rock band? Should we be a concert hall? Should we have a choir? Should we just have a guitarist? Well, I don't really deem that level of worship discussion to be, you know, worthy of, of pulpit time because that's really talking in terms of preferences. And I think all styles are in bounds because music is pretty, it's kind of a neutral thing. However, the theology and the doctrine behind the worship is what matters to me. Um, one person put it this way, said that in terms of worship styles, you have about, you have three basic kinds. You have those that are more mental or thinking worship songs, cerebral worship. It's almost like, you know, you're sitting there in the classroom and you're thinking through what's going on. You're thinking about God. Second, you have worship that is more like the therapist couch where it's dealing in terms of your heart and your emotions and where you are and how you feel about life. And then thirdly, you have worship that's motivational or something that directs you or tells you what to do. It's directive and, and it's a call to obedience. Well, which is it? I think it's kind of all of the above. And I get that from Isaiah 6, especially if you define these categories biblically. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. What is transcendent worship? Transcendent worship is worshiping a god the only true God, who transcends time, space, and history. Guess what? God is God and we are not. And it's time for us to worship, as one person put it, a God-sized God. And one of the clearest expressions of who God is and what he's like comes from Isaiah's vision from Isaiah chapter 6. Let me read this to you. In the year that King Uzziah died... This is Isaiah speaking. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And he said, or I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then once one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Stop there. You have all different dynamics going on here in terms of this worship experience. You want to talk about a worship experience. It's where you have God on full display and where you are in your heart shrinking before his holiness and his presence. In one sense, this worship encounter with the living God in total, when you take it in total in terms of what happens to Isaiah, it shows our greatest need in our lifetime is God himself. God is the one who fills your greatest need 
in life, right? And God is filling Isaiah's need here. Isaiah needed, first and foremost, to be blown away by a transcendent God. And he was blown away because he was thinking about who God is. Look at this. Verse 5, he says, For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. The metaphor of his eyes seeing the king is he's taking in this grand, lofty, lofty, transcendent, powerful vision of who God is. That doesn't just happen in terms of feel. That happens in terms of knowledge of who this God is. Guess what? The scripture describes God as someone who is incomprehensibly huge and massive. You know, a lot of people talk about God in terms of him being our buddy, our friend, you know, this one that we love in, in terms of intimate relationship and he wraps his arms around us and, and, and God is, you know, or God is like the Superman who comes in as the Superman savior and, and then goes away and flies off and, and we aren't accountable to him. Or God is, you know, Morgan Freeman right, you know, in the movies, and his soothing, gentle voice as an old man, you know, is, that's who God is, that's what he feels like, or God is someone who can't be trusted because he's angry with me, or he's going to drop the bomb on me suddenly, and I'm kind of holding him at arm's length with suspicion. There's a lot of views and concepts about God, but God is described to us in scripture as transcendent, as powerful, and as incomprehensibly wonderful in the array of all of his attributes, everything from holiness to love, from justice to loving kindness and the touch of a shepherd in our lives, right? He's transcendent and glorious, and then he's close and near to us at the same time. You know, I remember David saying, where can I flee from your spirit? You know, can I go high? Can I go low? Can I go here or there? Nowhere. I can't, there's nowhere I can go that you're not there. You're with me. So God is transcendent and he's eminent at the same time. He's with you. And that is the God that we must worship. And it comes through knowledge. You have to think about God biblically in worship to actually be worshiping God. Well, secondly, there is feeling and emotion in worship. And we want to highlight that as well. We should, as the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Tasting. There's a multi-sensory dynamic that, that should happen in our hearts as we feel music and feel the presence of God by being worshipers corporately together as we gather. Look what was going on in Isaiah's heart. He's saying, woe is me. The foundations are shaking, verse 4 and verse 5. Woe is me, I'm lost, I'm undone. His sin was exposed. He felt convicted about his sin, his unclean lips, his associations with unclean people. This was coming out during his worship experience. And I think that's important to have happen to us on Sunday mornings or in personal worship or in Bible study worship. Our sins are exposed within our own conscience and there needs to be something done about those sins. Well, what can be done? Look what happens. I love this. In the Old Testament, you find the gospel, the seraphim, the angel. It flies over, takes the burning coal, verse 6, with the tongs from the altar, representing the holiness of God. And if you inform that with the New Testament, it's like the blood of Christ is applied to the sinner that's hopeless without Christ. 
And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Don't you want the gospel reminder every week of your life where you know that you're clean and forgiven by the cross of Christ alone? So there's thinking and there's the personal touch of God as we are feeling the worship. And then finally, the motivation. What do you want to do when you know that you've been cleansed by the gospel of grace? You want to go for God. Verse 8. Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, look at verse 9, go and say basically the gospel to people. So that's worship. That's, that's a version of transcendent worship. God who is holy. I mean, what happened when people encountered God in the Old Testament? You have Ezekiel, you have Isaiah, they fell as dead men. In the New Testament, when John encounters the vision of God in the book of Revelation, he, it's like he fell out. We, we need to encounter the living God through the truth of God's word. So we get a God-sized God vision when we worship God. And that's what we want to bring to you on Sunday mornings. That's what we should all desire to participate in. Guess what? Let me add one, one more thing. When you worship a transcendent, holy God that is also your personal shepherd and savior, when you do that corporately and collectively, you know what happens? People get saved by watching you do that. And I want to prove it to you. Turn in your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. You know, this is where Paul is talking about the gifts of the Spirit, how each person is given a gift spiritually, and in the early church there was tongues and there was prophecy. Prophecy represents speaking truth in a known language, whereas tongues is speaking truth in a foreign language. And so Paul was giving a corrective in 1 Corinthians 14 saying, listen, I would prefer that you speak prophecies so that people can understand what's going on in the New Testament church. If you look at verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 14, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy or speak in a known language and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he's convicted by all. Do you see that all word? That's really important. He's convicted by what's going on corporately together. He's convicted by all. He is called to account by all. What does that mean? The church isn't standing up and saying, Up, oh, you're an unbeliever. I'm calling you to account. No. The church is worshiping the living God out loud in an understandable, ordered way. And the outsider comes in and sees that there is something going on here. There is an observable presence of God on display through the corporate body worshiping God. And it says, verse 25, just like Isaiah, look at this. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. He's not confessing those out loud. It's just you see your sin because your sin is the barrier between you and this transcendent God. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's evangelism. That's why in the communion time when we drink the cup and eat the bread. First Corinthians says that we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. It's a testimony of evangelism and corporate doxological evangelism is going on when we worship God in this way. 
You know, Moses, David, Solomon, and Isaiah all said regarding God, there is no God like you. God is a jealous God. He's jealous for his own glory because there's no one like him. And just to, by contrast, uh, I was reading a quote of, um, you know, the, the great theologian um, Brad Pitt. Just kidding. Um, but, but Brad Pitt, he actually went on record in a parade magazine t- in 2007 as rejecting God because he said God is filled with himself. He's full of ego because unless you exalt him, then he wants none of you. And, you know, that's a person who, instead of focusing on God and saying, let God be God, he's focusing on himself. And in Genesis chapter 3, what was Satan's temptation to Adam and Eve? You can be like God. In other words, you can make God like you. A lot of people want to make God like themselves so they can worship themselves. But we need to worship God as he's described in Holy Scripture. All right, the second distinctive. The second distinctive is expository preaching. Now, I use the word expository here because it is a traditional style that we have had here at Anchorage Grace Church. As far as I understand, as far as I understand things, as I've talked to people about the different preachers that have come through here, they've all been true to the book, and they've all preached the Word of God in sequential exposition or consecutive exposition. The idea behind that is there is topical preaching, there's evangelistic preaching. I'm doing topical preaching today, but in general, it's going through books of the Bible, and and that's expository preaching. Why do we do that? Well, I want you to understand the Word of God as it was written in terms of its original authorial intent. When writers wrote, they were writing to a time period, a people, and a place, and expressing themselves through a particular writing style or genre to communicate a point about God. And God has collected 66 books of the Bible that are the canon standard of inspired scripture. And he did this for a purpose. And so I want to follow within that purpose so that God reveals himself in the way that he originally intended. And that's the power of the word of God presenting it expositionally. The the word of God, by doing that, brings themes up to you rather than me thinking through my week and thinking, what is it that I want to say to them, you know, that's on my heart, instead of doing it that way and just picking and choosing themes, the themes come up through the exposition along the way. In other words, we've just gone into Philippians 4. Philippians 4, by and large, is talking about giving. So over the summer, for some of the weeks, we'll be finishing up Philippians 4, and I'll be talking about giving, because I think that that's what the Lord has for you as we have expositorily journeyed together through the Scripture. So that's why we do it that way here thus far, but it's not to denigrate or downplay topical preaching. The point of preaching is to take the Word of God and explain it with clarity from its original language, and then to, as the Puritans did it, impress the Word of God upon your hearts and upon your consciences in application. You should not just become good Bible scholars or Bible students by coming on Sunday mornings. You should have, if the preacher's doing his job, the convicting moment where the Word of God is being pressed into your hearts and into your consciences so you know what to do with the Word of God and what the will of God is speaking into your life by way of applications. I mean, that's the dynamic of preaching. 
I mean, a lot of people say, well, preaching is passe, you know, the, the ranting and raving loud preacher is a bygone exercise, and now that we have technology and media, we can just pal palatably have it our way. But that's not true. The Bible defines communication as that which is done through preaching. The communication of the Word of God is prescribed as being done through preaching. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. How are you equipped? How are you made complete? Through teaching. Not just, you know, we're in the classroom teaching. This is reproof. This is getting in your business. This is correction. Hey, you're going this way. You need to go that way. This is training. And then it gets more severe here. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and then of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. You know, if they throw tomatoes, it's fine, stones, it doesn't matter. Whether it's in season, whether people are liking it or not, you know, hard preaching is what makes soft hearts. And so you're just to preach it, and you're to do it whenever. How? What's the method? By reproving, rebuking, and exhorting with patience and teaching. 2 Timothy 2.15, you're to be an approved worker, handling rightly the word of truth. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Here's the definition of preaching again. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. There it is. You publicly read the Scripture. You exhort with it. You apply it through teaching. Titus 2.15. Declare, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. You know, I don't have any more authority than what the Word of God says. But you are supposed to preach it. We're supposed to be stirred in our hearts that this is what the Lord has for you in terms of your life from the Word of God. Somebody went up to uh, Benjamin Franklin, who was a fan of George Whitfield. George Whitfield, who was preaching during the First Great Awakening in our country, amassing la la large crowds as he preached. And Benjamin Franklin, this sort of scientist, was in awe of his ability to project to crowds a mass that were multi-thousands of people. And anyway, someone said, you don't even agree with what he says. You don't believe what he's saying. Why do you come? He says, well, I don't believe what he's saying, but he believes what he's saying. I mean, you want people handling the word of God with passion and earnestness so that your hearts will be stirred for you to grow in grace. And that comes through preaching. It comes through believing in the verbal, plenary inspiration of Scripture. What is inspiration? Inspiration is the foundation for why we believe this book is holy. The Quran, the Book of Mormon, the Apocrypha, these extra-biblical writings, these traditional writings, they're not inspired Scripture. The way that you understand inspiration is that the Bible defends itself as fully inspired. In 2 Timothy, for instance, 3.16 it says that all scripture is breathed out by God. Paul, at that point, is telling Timothy about the Old Testament. But Paul's words are affirmed in 2 Peter as holy scripture by Peter. 
And then Jesus also, he affirms Old Testament writings. And then in the pastoral epistles, they'll pick up on the very words of Jesus themselves. And so all through the scripture, there is interconnectivity of affirmation that this is the word of the living God. And more so than that, let me just say this, underneath the whole explanation of the scripture being inspired is the very character of God behind the scripture. Why do we know that this word is truth? Because God cannot lie. He cannot lie. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says, God who cannot lie. Numbers 23 says, God is not a man that he should lie. Jesus in John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. Um, in John 10, I think it's verse 31, John says, and Jesus is speaking, the scripture cannot be broken. This is the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of the living God. Was the word of God written by man or by God? Answer is, trick question, yes. It, it, was, it was written by God. He's the one who breathed the words through the original authors who wrote the original manuscripts that are perfect. And from those original manuscripts, we have a preserved word of the living truth. It's like, you know, there's an array of instruments. If you have, you know, one musician blowing through the different kinds of woodwinds, you have a little bit different sounds, like, you know, different personalities of the authors that are writing. You have different sounds, but you have one, you know, wind that's coming through one person. And so that's sort of a, a metaphorical picture of God and his spirit blowing through different instruments, different personalities, different people who wrote in different styles and different ways. Some were more precisionist oriented, some were more generalist, but all of it is true and verified by itself as a living God. Psalm 119, 105 says, the sum of thy word is truth. It means all of it, all of it is equally inspired and equally authoritative in and of itself. Job 23 is where Job, as this struggling believer, was saying, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. I want us to be a church that's hungry for scripture and hungry for it to change our lives. I did not read as a young person. I did, you know, in my early years in elementary, I was a reader, and then I checked out. And I didn't check back into reading until I became born again. Suddenly, I couldn't put the Bible down. And it wasn't that, oh, I love the discipline of reading at that point. It was that God made me hungry. Are you hungry for truth? First Peter chapter 2, verse 1. We're to long for the word of God like a newborn babe longs for the milk of his mother. We're, we're, we're to long for the food, the bread, and the meat of the word of God. We are. And I want us to be a church that has that testimony. Thirdly, we need to be those who build community. Community. Now, I've talked about this since I've come here, and I think that it's an important um, thing for us to think about because really we're, we're talking about defining church biblically. That's what I mean by building community. We are a church, and it takes church to grow spiritually. You know, as one person put it, you know, it's just a slogan that's used a lot. You've, you've heard it. It takes a village to raise a kid, right? 
You know, well, in the Kratz household, we've become our own village. So I see that in, in play every day. I mean, they're raising each other all over the place as they bounce around. Um, but I think, you know, just to make that slogan church, it takes a whole church to raise a new Christian. It takes a church to raise a believer. Think about it. You know, 1 Timothy chapter 5, it says that we are the family of God. I love this picture in 1 Timothy 5 verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. We're the family of God. We're supposed to know each other. We're supposed to commit to each other. We're supposed to treat each other in certain ways in terms of respect. The older women are to disciple the younger women and teach them things about their life and about applying the word of God in that particular way. The older men are to raise up the younger men in the body of Christ. There are infants, newborn babes, there are adolescents and young men and women, and then there are father figures and mother figures in the body of Christ. Now, I think a lot of people obscure this because they'll say, well, when you're talking about church, when Paul talks about church in 1 Corinthians 12, you know, through 14, or Ephesians chapter 4, like we read earlier, he's talking about the one faith, one big universal body. And so that's what we're talking about. And so where we go in terms of local church worship doesn't really matter a whole lot. Well, you can't pit Paul against Paul or scripture against, against scripture because you have both. You have the local church and you have the universal church expressed equally well in scripture. When Jesus said, I will build my church, he is talking about the universal church. He's talking about all the believers through all the ages for all times that are coming to faith in Christ that make up what's called the body of Christ or what makes up what's called the bride of Christ that Christ is the head over. But guess what? The church is also made up of gifted believers. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says, Each believer is given a gift by the Holy Spirit where they're supposed to serve. Right? In Ephesians chapter 5, sort of building off of that, Ephesians chapter 4 rather, Paul, he talks about the gifts. And he says that, there are, verse 11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds. Here's the pastors in our New Testament stage. The shepherds and teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And that's talking locally with actual people that are gifted. I mean, when you harmonize that with Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, you have actual spiritual leaders that give watch care over the souls in particular of a local church. If you go to the pastoral epistles, which I may launch a series on um, sooner than later, First and Second Timothy and Titus, you know what that is? Those three books of the Bible are the blueprint for how to do church and what church is supposed to look like. You have elders, you have deacons, you have deaconesses, you have people serving in the body of Christ, you have references to giving, you have references to preaching and receiving the word of God together. You have a plurality of eldership represented in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Titus was commanded to appoint elders in every city. And so you have these local expressions 
that are physical expressions of the universal church. The universal church is invisible and it's all the believers through all the ages, right? How is that expressed physically? How is it manifested in our world? Well, it's manifested in local settings. Actually, the word church, ecclesia in the original language, it means the called out ones. It can also be interpreted as the called together ones. And then you get the word church, which is really a Scottish term. Um, it's originally the word kirk, K-R-I-R-K, or, and, and that is built from the original language of the word Lord, which is kurios. Kurios is Lord. And so if you harmonize all that thinking and theology together, you have a group of assembled people under the lordship and headship of Christ. That's a church. There are marks of the church. There's giving, there's the Lord's Supper, there's baptism, there's preaching, there's church discipline, there's eldership. There are sheep, and the sheep are called to use their particular gift in a body. This is the life together where we need the whole village of the church to grow spiritually. It's not enough to just come and be exhorted. You have to also be spurring one another on to love and good deeds, which is Hebrews chapter 10. It's a lot there, a lot to talk about, but that's a distinctive. Number four, number four. So we've talked about the idea of transcendent worship, the idea of expository preaching, the idea of building community, being involved in each other's lives, and then lastly, the fourth distinctive, making disciples, making disciples. I want you to turn over to Matthew 28, Matthew 28, you've Heard this verse a million times, we're going to, these verses a million times, but it's the Great Commission. And this is where we build the idea of making disciples. What is a disciple? Matthew 2.0. It's a learner. It's a learner. And where is the best way to learn how to make disciples? I think it's by looking at Jesus and his disciples. I mean, that's probably what he's referencing when he says, hey, make disciples, right? Because he called that crowd that he was talking to. He's talking to more than that crowd, but he was talking talking to that crowd he called disciples. How did Jesus do it? Well, let's just read what he says first, and I'll tell you. Verse 18, and Jesus came to them, came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, discipleship or making disciples is more than just making good Bible students. Discipleship is life on life. It's where Jesus called disciples and lived with them and walked with them in their day-to-day lives and taught them and applied the teachings of Christ which was also the teachings of Holy Scripture, to their lives. It's life together. Making disciples. Being on mission in your daily life is the call of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's teaching them how to observe all that Christ commanded. It's not just teaching knowledge. It's teaching knowledge of Christ that is lived out in your day-to-day life. And you say, okay, well, thank you for you know, that lesson about local missions. What about universal missions? Do you still care about global missions? Well, Matthew 28, 18 to 20 is talking not just in terms of local missions. It's 
It's also talking in terms of, if you see here, verse 19, all nations. There are a lot of people today who say, well, you know, nowadays, because our world is shrinking through technology, because the cities are, you know, the metroplexes of, of you know, this cross-pollinated culture where the world is coming to us, let's just be missional, that's sort of the buzzword, be missional in the cities with local churches, and that's getting it done. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't promise that all the nations and all the people groups are going to come to us. In essence, we are called to cross oceans, to cross borders, to cross cultural barriers, to learn languages, and give the gospel to people. And if we don't go, then we have to send people to go. We should pray that God would call in the, you know, bring in the harvest. Matthew 19, harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Pray earnestly, earnestly that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into his harvest. Some of you might be called to the mission field for short-term missions or long-term missions. It's a worthy task. It's part of the Great Commission. We either do it locally and then we send people or we go ourselves to do the work. Missions. You know, I, I was reading in this book, I took um, some of my material from this morning from this book. Um, it was a book at, um, written by, authored by Kevin DeYoung, and he was sort of the chief editor over several topics. Um, but in terms of missions, there's some amazing statistics these days to think about, especially in terms of um, global evangelization. I mean, a lot of times I think it's easy to get discouraged and say, you know, we're not really the persecuted church in North America now, we're sort of this lazy church that's, you know, thinking through marketing strategies or emergent strategies or, or whatever else to try to just get people into church. You know, what's going on? Is the power of the gospel sort of on half power at this point? But these um, details that were collected from some mission surveys were encouraging to me. It's actually the idea that, yeah, in North America and even Europe, people aren't getting saved you know, in droves up here, but in what's called the global south in South America and Africa, guess what? Have you heard? People are getting saved all over the place. For instance, Europe was home to 70% of the world's professing Christians in 1900, and by 2000, it was less than 30%. And in the meantime, Latin America and Africa had become home to over 40%. Africa had 10 million professing Christians in 1900, about 10% of the population. Look at this. But by 2000, the number was 360 million. Now, again, these are professing Christians. We don't know exactly who's regenerate or not. But whether you hear about China or Africa or South America, there's a lot going on. It's a lot of it's persecuted Christians. You know, it's about half of Africa's population is professing Christ now. This may mark the largest shift in religious affiliation in world history. The number of practicing Christians in China is approaching the number in the United States. Last Sunday, more Christians, Christian believers attended church in China than all of so-called Christian Europe. In a word, the Christian church has experienced a larger geographical redistribution in the last 50 years than in any corporate period in history, with the exception of the very earliest years of church history. You know, one other statistic is, um, that was interesting for me to think about, and a lot of mission 
uh, missiologists will talk about this, and it's the idea that there are a lot of Christian martyrs giving their life for Christ now. And we might not be hardcore persecuted here in North America, but people are giving their lives in, in radical ways that we don't always hear about. It's generally accepted that there are more Christian martyrs in the 20th century. There were more in the 20th century than the 19 previous centuries combined. Have you heard that? I've heard that before. And it is, it's alarming, but it's also comforting to know that God is working. Don't you want to be in on that mission work? I do. Every time that you meet with somebody, every time that as you're going, as you're living your life, you're fulfilling the great commission as you, as you give the gospel to people. As you make disciples, 2 Timothy 2.2 style. Acts 1.8, you know, the disciples, they started a mission in Jerusalem, Judea, and guess where we are? We're in the outermost parts of the earth. That was an effective mission that launched 2,000 years ago that we're still enjoying today and we're a part of. It's important to think about. You know, <clears throat> in the next few weeks, I just want to sort of give you my heart. Um, I'm going to have some of the associates preach to you from their hearts to yours. And um, they will preach um, texts of scripture from their hearts that will reflect these four distinctives. Hopefully, in every sermon, you'll, you'll be faced with the challenge to worship a God who's transcendent. You'll hear the living word of God from expository preaching. You'll be drawn to each other to build community. And then lastly, you'll be compelled to go and make disciples. All of these distinctives are um, wedded together. Um, some of you, you know, have heard um, from my family and my, my situation lately that my wife has an ailing mother in Virginia, and she, you know, she's not in great shape. And so it really seems like the Lord um, is, is calling me to take my four kids that I have here. She's there with two and go join her for a few weeks. And so um, we've, you know, bought tickets to go there and be with her. And I just want to support, you know, my wife during um, the next few weeks because her mom, I mean, in terms of hospice care and, and different people who've spoken about her does not look like she's going to be long for this world. She does love the Lord, and if she goes to be with him soon, then that will be a gain for her and a loss, you know, for us on this end. But, um, but we don't know, but this summer seems like an important one um, to, for me to do that. So I'm going to go away for a few weeks and be east, and I promise we'll all come back, all eight of us, and uh, be together. She's been, uh, Judy's been away from me almost three weeks now, and it'll be four by the time um, we go. But I'm going to have some of these associates. Um, you know, you, you saw in the communication that we're, um, we're sort of redistributing the duties where Pastor Randy is um, going to be the superintendent interimly and um, pastorally uh, over the school. And so Leo Masters, he's really sensed a call in his heart to take up the mantle with uh, youth ministry. And Randy's done incredible work for 19 years in youth ministry, shepherding the flock, and has, has very excitedly endorsed um, Pastor Leo to, uh, to take this call up. And um, Leo, you know, he, he's saying, look, I don't want to just do this half-heartedly or do it because it, the, need, it, the need is there, but he really has sensed that the Lord is calling him to preach the word to youth and make disciples and has a lot of missions experience. I mean, he's taken um, students from GCS um, 15 times to Guatemala and several times to Bush, Alaska, 
And I've tried to pry the missions trip from his heart, um, from his hands here, and said, Leo, you got so much to do. Why are you still wanting to take these kids to Guatemala? I mean, really? But it was his heart was, was just going out to these kids. He loves to shepherd young people and, and to um, promote them in gospel ministry and, and to preach them. So, so he's going to be overseeing those areas. And you can see it fleshed out in the organizational chart. Um, and, and then also Nathan Schneider, I want to point him out to you. Uh, you know, um, he's um, from Fairbanks, and, and so he wanted to come home to Alaska, and so we gave him a spot here. Um, he was hired by the school to be a Bible teacher, but also has been our worship assistant and has done a great job. And then, all, and then recently in January has been the director of worship, and Linda Grant was ready to hand that fully over to him. But um, we really have discerned and believe that the Lord is laying it on our hearts to, to affirm him as um, a worship pastor here, the pastor to worship ministry here at Anchorage Grace Church. That's exciting to me. Um, we've not had a full-time worship pastor here at our local church for some 19 years, almost two decades without someone really giving full-time care and oversight to the worship ministry. We've had incredible worship. We've eaten well with our investment. I mean, I, I've loved our worship ministry, but I want it to be even better and greater. And it's a great opportunity for me to invite any of you um, who are sitting um, quietly in the seats who have worship ministry talent, both as a singer or as a musician. You know, if you've just hidden that talent away, then God bless your sin-sick, shriveled-up souls. But no, I'm just kidding. But no, anyway, we want you to be part of the worship ministry because, again, transcendent worship, transcendent worship is very important and listed at the top for good reason. So we want to all participate in that well. But Nathan Schneider is going to be leading that movement. And again, be in prayer for me and my family during this time. And, and prayerfully come and eat well from these associate pastors. I think Randy's going to be preaching soon. Leo, Nathan, and perhaps others. We, we want to um, come and eat well from the Word of God even this summer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together, this um, heart-to-heart family time in your Word. Lord, thanks for guiding us with the Scripture Lord, um, guide us, guard us in the truth, and let us be a testimony of one of the churches in Anchorage um, here who loves the truth amongst many others who love the Word of God. Um, Lord, we we don't look down on any other church flock at all. We want to be together for the gospel with all gospel-loving, preaching churches and connected. But Lord, let us be a particular testimony here as Anchorage Grace Church, holding high the truth for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.